Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host Don Abernathy and Jeff Cupsey. Welcome everybody to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. And as you heard Carrie say, with my co-host Jeff Copsetta, but unfortunately Jeff had to cancel tonight due to more craziness going on out in Texas. And so we're going to try a first here tonight on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, and that is we're going to have two guests on simultaneously who've never met each other. Um, a few weeks back we had on Jeff, and then we had on R.J. Nevins, who was the producer, the writer, and director of the short film Walking Point, which you can find on Amazon Prime, as well as Jeff, who was actually in Walking Point, and then Brandon, who also helped with Walking Point. And so we've had multiple guests on before, but this is, in fact, the first time we've had guests on where the three of us have never met before. We just have a common interest, and that's the great thing about World War II reenacting and reenacting in general is we're a group of guys who share a common interest, and that makes instant friends out of people instantaneously. So... For those of you watching on YouTube later on, up in the corner we have Tyler joining us from Vermont. Tyler, how are you doing tonight, sir? And I did it again, Tyler. I still had you guys muted. Tyler, how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing good. We are a hot mess. And joining us from California, which it's like, what, seven his time, Matthew. How are you doing today, Matthew? Hi there, Don. Doing pretty good. Thanks for joining us. Um, I want to get to Tyler here momentarily, but Matthew, what exactly – I know you have a deuce and a half – and I know you have a Jeep, and I've seen your videos, and you have a lot of um, aircraft posters in the background. Are you a private collector, or do you work for an official museum? So that's actually a museum I work for. So the deuce and a half is not mine. That belongs to the museum. And I just kind of work there periodically now because everything's shut down, and it's something to do, and it's along my interest line. Oh, and Tyler just uh, dropped his phone. How... We're at in California, California, are you? I see the Golden Gate Bridge behind you, but that may just be a fancy photo. Oh. Yeah, that's just one of the stock uh, sure. Zoom things. Um, I'm down in Southern California over in Orange County. Okay, we're at in Orange County. Um, over here in Anaheim. Okay, I actually went to school in Anaheim uh, for computers back in 03. I lived in Long Beach, basically from 01 to 03. I lived in Long Beach, went to school in Anaheim, and worked in La Habra. So as you can imagine, on a daily basis, I got to see a lot of traffic and a lot of nonsense. But I left California in 04 moved down to Florida. So I'm very familiar with Anaheim. But what's the World War II? Um, are you, do you just do the Museum of Living, uh, Living History displays, or do you actively do reenacting? We, well, we used to do active reenacting until pretty much the pandemic shut a lot of things down. Sure. So we're not doing a whole lot right now, but we were doing things pretty much once a month over with our historical group. And where do you guys tend to, uh, well, I guess first and foremost, obviously California back then in the 40s did a lot of training for the Marine Corps and the Navy, etc. But what's your guys' key impression out there in California when you back when things were open? Let's just pretend it's 2019. If you're heading out to do an event next weekend, what was your guys' key impression that you would do? Well, for me personally, it was the 9th Infantry Division, even though they were based up in, uh, what was it, North Carolina. Sure. But... We have members from all over the platform. We have people who want to do U.S. Marine Corps. We have Women's Army Corps. We have um, 82nd Airborne. Nice. We have pretty much anything you can think of, we have members joining. And it's probably about 75 members or so. What are you guys so, doing as a museum to kind of supplement your income through 2020? I mean, now we're into 2021, but I know California, you guys are still in this weird gray area when it comes to open, close, what you can do, what you can't do. Um, we hear one of our local museums, 
Um, they're kind of interesting. They're called the Southwest Florida Military Museum and Library, and they actually got started because they were kind of a, a group of vets who would help other veterans get their VA, um, you know, benefits and things like that. And they'd also feed vets on Wednesdays. And people started donating so many things to them that they eventually took over an old grocery store and opened a museum. Well, during nice. COVID, they took such a big hit they had to consolidate from imagine. In, in your California terms, imagine having a museum set up in an Albertsons or, or a Ralph's and then have to downgrade to the Disney store at the mall because they literally just moved into the old Disney store at the mall because they were in what used to be a sweet big grocery store. But they took such a huge hit. Um, what are you guys doing to kind of maintain your, um, your, your ability to stay open? Well, muse- museums have been pretty much closed since the beginning of 2020. So there's no money flowing there. It's completely at a standstill. And it's probably why so many businesses and museums are starting to close doors. Yeah, it's so sad but to see. We're, we're just doing what we can right now, and it's a lot of fun, especially since we go in and we get to play on big toys, and we got to see things like the Deuce, Deuce and a Half, and there's a ton of Jeeps. Yeah, There's even a new uh, Vietnam War display that we're putting together, so that's coming along pretty nicely. Yeah, it's interesting to see over the last, I'd say, five years, the Vietnam side of reenacting starting to pick up more, which I think is pretty cool. We actually had a uh, an event here um, it was kind of a dual event. It was World War II down at the bottom of this hill, which in Florida to have a hill is insane. And then they actually had a fire base up at the top for Vietnam. And then they actually had a Huey where you could do helicopter rides. But um, it was, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to see how the the community and the hobbies expanded. Tyler, what is it like up in Vermont? How's reenacting up there? I mean, I'm down in here in Florida um, on Facebook. I, I primarily deal with guys out of um, Florida, Georgia, uh, Texas, Louisiana. Um, how are things up in Vermont? Is, is reenacting big up there? No, definitely not. Where do you it's go the, for most of your events? So I've, I haven't been to really basically any events. I've, I've been to one, which is the one in Redding, Pennsylvania. Okay. Sorry, my dogs. That's all right. Me, but... Um, but the main way that I got into it was I like was exposed to it for a long time through my uncle okay. who, is, uh, if you've heard of the world war two, like airborne demonstration team, they're based on, oh, yeah. he's one of the leading members of that and has been since like 2008 or something. And so I was always like, you know, kind of exposed to it anyway. Is, but that, then, is that the same group as the round canopy jump team or is that a different group? I think it's a different group i'm not positive but okay only reason i ask because uh, i had a, a member of them on the podcast about two years ago and and so i wasn't uh-huh. sure how many authentic uh jump groups there were out of the united states and so what was the name of the group he was part of it's the world war ii airborne demonstration ah, gotcha team. yeah um and so then yeah so like i said i was exposed to it like you know for basically my whole life like in little minor quantities but then over the past like few years i'd say i started getting into it more and more and with him being there it obviously helped it because you know and i've been i went down there they do a um every summer they do a two-week jump school where people can pay and go down and it's all world war ii style so like you wear world war ii uniforms and everything and then they have a few c-47s and they teach you how to jump out of it like along the same style the static jumps um, have been and so I got to go down for the jump school, which was fun. Nice. Do a lot of cool stuff. Now I noticed on your Instagram a lot of your impressions are uh, PTO based, but with you being in Vermont, if you really want to jump in this hobby, 
you may want to put together a D-Day impression so you can scoot on over to Ohio every year around August to take place in the D-Day anniversary because that's a huge event and that's going to be the closest big thing to you. Yeah, that's what we were. I wanted to do that um, before, you know, COVID happened. And our plan was to go to Reading and that one, which I was super excited for. But, you know, then it didn't happen. Matthew, how, um, you, you put out some great stuff on TikTok. And I'm sure with COVID, it kind of opens you up to have a little more time to do that. What are What's the one... I don't know. What's the one thing people hit you up with most? I, I instinctively, I had to ask because everybody's talking about the blackout lights. I'm like, too bad you don't have the pole on your Jeep. Cause I, that's always a fun story. And, um, but how is, how have people's response been? And what's one of the uh, things they're most interested on out, out of all the stuff you guys have? Well, it's funny on TikTok since it's an ever changing game. And what was kind of popular, say six months ago is completely changed into something new. So the biggest thing I've been doing lately is responding to questions because it seems that people have questions and it's fun to answer them. And I'm enjoying a lot more because I can keep them short, sweet, and right to the point. So like the blackout lights, super popular and it's bringing all the military veterans out and they're all talking and anecdoting. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to see how it's just brought a whole community together. And by the way, for you guys listening, um, with the, Iwo Jima anniversary, I replayed the um, interview that I did with Mr. Robert Glenn, who, as he explained and as I played in the clip on YouTube and TikTok, he was actually sitting on a gurney after taking a, uh, after getting wounded on Iwo Jima when the flag went up. And we've had the luxury and pure benefit here at the What's the Scullet podcast to have interviewed six veterans or people alive during the time. And the reason I say that is, um, well, I've interviewed a female, but... Um, sadly, the audio isn't that great. It's when I first got into it. I interviewed this guy at this beautiful mansion with all marble. Now, if anybody knows anything about audio, marble and audio don't go well together. And so the background's really echoey, but this guy was six years old and he lived in Germany at the time. And he can remember vividly about the battles going on in his village. And if you can get past the echo, I strongly recommend going back and listening to that episode. But the reason I bring it up is this generation is leaving us faster and faster, especially after COVID. So if any of you guys out there know anybody who was around at the time, they don't even have to have served. If it's a, you know, your great grandmother who was alive during the time who, you know, obviously the only caveat is, is they have to be pretty um, cognitive, at least in their head uh, to be able to recall and tell a decent story. They don't have, you know, I can always edit out pauses and things like that. So don't worry about that. But as long as they have a recall, email us at info at d-410.com or mail call at wtspworldwar2.com because we really want to get as many of those interviews in the can. Um, sadly, I think now out of the six I've done, I think four of them have since passed away. Um, I was happy. I got very lucky to interview one gentleman while he was actually at hospice. Um, it's sad to think, but I was so thankful that his daughter was able to set that up for us so we can get his memories on record for everyone to, you know, share now that he's since passed. So I can't express the importance that if you guys know anybody, simply send us an email at uh, mail call at WTSP World War Two dot com and um, just whether it's the grandchild or the their child or even them, just all I need is an email address or a phone number and I'll do everything else on my side. So if you guys know anybody, please send them my way. You know, it's interesting what you're saying, Matthew, about TikTok, because I signed up last year and I was getting a few likes, this and that. And I don't know if it's because of the Iwo Jima anniversary and World War II, which is kind of in the air on the internet, but my channel blew up over the last week. Um, I went from like, I don't know, 
high 4,000s to the low 5,000s, I'm at like 6,120 as of today. So like over the, I've gained like a thousand followers just because I reposted some World War II content. So and it's you're trending. Yeah, it's it's blowing up right now. So I'm taking advantage of it. I'm like reposting videos that I posted last year just to have some more World War II content that people thoroughly enjoy. But Matthew, what got you into the whole hobby? I mean, that's one of the things I like to do on this podcast when we introduce somebody for the first time is kind of get their background. How'd you get into all this? Well, I was a collector first. And it was all because I was like 18 years old and I loved movies. I got to watch the war movies. Sure. I wanted to start collecting it. And then suddenly I found myself talking to all these World War II reenactors. There I was. I came out to an event in 2004, I think it was. 2004 was my first going out to battles. And I thought, well, this is really cool. And then from there, it spread into many different directions. And one of them being, I want a Jeep. Oh, I really want my World War II Jeep. Yeah. So, yeah, that exploded. And now I just kind of blog about that and it has now, nothing to do with my daily job or anything, but it's just something I get to do for fun now. What do you do for a living? Well, what do you think I do? Um, I mean, I'm an IT guy. I've had people on here who are history teachers in college. I've had people who are, you know, mechanics. And that's kind of the other cool thing about this hobby is, you know, it's, it's one of the things I like is I've been doing living history down here for six or seven years. And I have friends that I only see at events and mm -hmm. the craziest thing is either when they show up on Friday or they're getting ready to leave on Sunday and they're the cat to change and you see them in their civilian clothing like, I didn't picture that would be your style. So it's always weird the first time you see somebody outside of their uniform in their civilian clothing and you're like, huh. But um, what do I think you do for a living? I'm going to say, I'm going to say program developer. Oh, cool. I've done programming in the past, but... C++ guy. So what the uh, the point of it was on TikTok is nobody knows what I do. It's not important. Oh, you're like I the captain of Save It Private Ryan. What's the uh, what's the pull up to again? Three hundred dollars. Sorry, I just watched it. It was on a History Channel, so I was watching that earlier tonight. So you're it, keeping it a big you're keeping it a big secret, huh? No, I, I I get that. No, no, I teach at elementary school. Okay, cool. Yeah, yes, I'm a teacher, but when I'm on TikTok, that's a whole different thing. It's themed. It's World War II, and it circles around that, and that's the point of it. Anybody can be involved. Yep. My uh, fiancé is a fourth-grade elementary school teacher. Now, it's, oh, nice. It's interesting what you're saying about how collecting got you into the hobby, because as, as I've said before, okay, Bailey, i got to sit you down. You're, like, going crazy on my microphone. As I said before, I got into the hobby because um, I was just, you know, surfing around on eBay, and this isn't the particular one, but it was my first M1 helmet. I got it. I bought it. And I'm like, hey, this thing's cool. And I sat it on my desk. Didn't really think much about it. I was reading books. And I'd have family members come over or friends, coworkers. And they would be in my room looking at my computer stuff. And they'd pick up the helmet. And like, wow, this thing's heavy. And I realized by having something in their hands, someone who previously could care less about the topic, whether it's a M1 helmet or an old canteen, now whether it's for 30 seconds or five minutes, oh, I couldn't imagine carrying this thing around on my head for three months. All of a sudden, now they're interested. And I got, I got the thing, well, that's kind of cool. And I slowly just started building an impression. And my logistical mistake, kind of like Tyler living up in Vermont, my first impression was a Marine Corps impression. And at the time, no one was doing PTO stuff. And so I put together a Marine Corps impression, which took me like a year. And then I went on Facebook and I kind of fell in ironically with first ID, which is army, but they allowed me to set up my Marine Corps stuff at their living history events. And I slowly started putting together first ID impression. And then all the rest of it went downhill from there. Let me ask you this living in Southern California, 
and getting into the hobby. Is it easier? It's never easy, but is it easier to find reproduction gear at a large quantity because of all the movie productions in the past? Well, I'd be lying if I didn't say we knew a lot of movie production people, and a lot of us have actually been in movies. Yeah. So that's one of the big advantages, but relatively, the high cost of living here makes a lot of the collectibles seem relatively low price compared to a lot of places. <laughs> well, that's part of the reason so, why I left. When I left in 2003, my dad was moving down here. I just got out mm -hmm. of com computer uh, school. I was working in La, La Harbor for a web hosting company who's now since sold to Host Papa, which is sad. But anyhow, he's like, I'm moving to Florida to retire. You can stay out here or go out there. I'm thinking, okay, I'm making $9 an hour. Um, the rent of a single-room apartment in 2003 in the bad side of Long Beach is $1,200 a month. I don't think I can swing it, so I moved down to Florida. So I definitely get that. Um, that is one of the cool aspects of this hobby. Let me ask you, Taylor. Tyler, being up in Vermont, you said there's no real living history community up there. Um, do you just primarily get your stuff offline? How do you stay? Yeah. How do you stay motivated to do it? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I mean, I've always just like I really love building the impressions, mm -hmm. and so I think it just like. I'm actually quite similar to you where it, it mostly started for me with a helmet. So it's, a, it's kind of funny because when I was like, I don't know, really little, like, like nine or 10, my uncle would come back from doing the jump school and we'd, we'd always watch like war movies together. Sure. We'd watch like the old ones, like a bridge too far. And like, you know, like, I think like he showed me like wind talkers when I was like six and my parents. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong for, for what it was, it was bad. I mean, I, the first, oh, and yeah, no. first and foremost, Nicholas Cage turning his early dog tags into a choker. Uh, that's just the beginning of my my uh, grievances with that movie. Um, to have a movie with the subject matter that I feel because for you guys don't know, uh, the Pacific is my my key point, and obviously with Jeff being my co-host and what he does, most of our knowledge resides in the PTO, and to have content that I feel is that important that is of the wind talkers and to have the big Hollywood movie about that subject matter. I mean, obviously it wasn't a blockbuster, but even regardless of what the outside community thought, just how badly done it was done uh, production wise and, and authentically, it's just, a, it's just a damn shame. Think but there is the other side of it that we get to see in Hollywood is when something's brought up, it becomes a big deal. Yes. And people know about it. And over here, we have a lot more of the Native American community. And they're just booming ever since that movie came out. And people know about it. Yes. And, so that's and, the cool side of it. And, and, you know, Matthew, I couldn't agree with you more. Nothing annoys me more than when I hear the elitist reenactors refer to Band of Brothers as Bandwagoner Brothers. It's like, okay, hold on a minute. We all claim yeah. that we're in this hobby because we want to preserve history and share it with people who previously have no interest in it. And I don't care what you say. There has never been a project bigger in doing that. Even to this day, you know, Band of Brothers will be on Spike TV or the History Channel. They'll play it all day long. And now the Pacific was on two days ago. But there is not a product, a mainstream product that has ever been done with maybe the exception of Save It Private Ryan that has introduced an entire generation of people to the subject matter of World War II to the fact that people know the names of these gentlemen. They know who Dick Winters is. They know who Babe Heffron is, William Garnier, 
uh, One Long McClung, all those people. And to say, yes, I get it. Because when that movie came out, now three quarters of the reenacting community were doing airborne impressions. I get that aspect of it. But if we're truly trying to say we want people not to forget and to learn, what a better vehicle to get people at least interested in the hobby or in the history. And I'll be honest with you. Because of Band of Brothers, I went out and picked up other books beyond Band of Brothers. The people who served who weren't covered in that movie. Um, I'm looking at my collection over here. Uh, Brothers in Battle, Best of Friends. That's the biography that Babe Heffern and, um, and Garnier did. So because of that movie, I got interested in learning more about the 101st Airborne. I do an 82nd Airborne impression because I feel they're underrepresented. But to, like you were saying, even if you as the reenactor don't enjoy the movie and I'm not a big fan of wind talkers. It definitely served its purpose as far as getting people's attention on the subject matter. And that we got to thank them for. I got to say, Stephen Pratt Ryan band of brothers is what got me into the hobby. It definitely was a huge boost. Sure. And I think the reason people are so negative about them is because it's easy to be negative behind the computer or keyboard. And as you start researching more, sure, you're going to find movie inaccuracies, but that's not the point of it. Yeah, you know, and and Tyler, I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but that is the, I guess the the best way to say that is the price we pay for being reenactors, um, being someone who's quote unquote an expert in the topic, is we have a hard time sitting through a show or a movie without nitpicking it. Sadly, yeah. I had never seen the longest day until I started reenacting. Oh my gosh! And then I saw it. <laughs> And I'm like, what in God's name is that hanging off the helmet? Yeah. And then I got thinking. Then I actually, it, it, I, there was education part. I started researching. When was this movie made? When was this well, movie? Did you see it in black and white or the colorized version? I saw the colorized version, but I, I, actually no, I saw the black and white version, and I like the black and white version because it makes the real footage they use blend in a little better, even though it's a lot grainier. But the thing that I got to think of was, when was this made? Where were all the M1 Garands? Was this made during Vietnam? Were like people in boot camp and all the M1 Garands gone? Because if you notice, the only person who carries an M1 in that entire movie is John Wayne because he uses it as a crutch. And so <laughs> if you don't know anything about World War II, you just assume that everybody fight with Thompson submachine guns because literally everybody in that movie is using a Thompson except for John Wayne. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, where were all the where were all the M1s at? Were they not available? And so that was one of the things that kind of threw me off with and with the weird change. Perhaps they too. thought everyone had a submachine gun in World War II. I mean, everyone talks about it. Even yeah. when I joined, everyone kept talking about the submachine guns. Yeah. Maybe they've just made it easier on the Foley artist. You only had to find one one track of a well, all the all the uh, gun tracks were the same then as well. Tyler, living in a state like Vermont, um, Actually, it's kind of appends to both of you, really, not to get too political, but um, Vermont and California are definitely not known for uh, the most friendliest gun laws. Do you guys find or does it become problematic when it comes to going to events with your M1 Garands and all that? Are there more um, protocols in, in, involved when it comes to safety and things like that? Well, actually, so for Vermont, the gun laws in Vermont are like – some of the most relaxed in the country 
Really? Um, that surprises me. I, I just goes to yeah, show like my so. lack of knowledge I, on Vermont gun laws. I just assume because you're the home of Ben and Jerry that you guys would be like, no, no, more that's, strict. yeah, that's the funniest part is like you'd assume it that they'd be pretty strict, but I think they're, I'm pretty sure it's the most relaxed state in the country. Um, we don't like my M1, I'm 17, my M1's legally mine. Um, I could, I, I can and have just wandered down the road with it no permit nothing needed i have walked through um, downtown tampa with mine but that's because they have the ss american victory liberty ship down there and we parked in the parking mm-hmm. garage across from sea world but i i have expected to got stopped by the cops but i guess when you're in full uniform carrying a rifle down yeah, the sidewalk no, no one thinks to stop you yeah and like yeah you can handguns you don't have a need a permit you can carry concealed carry open carry without a permit whatever you want to do um so yeah, I, like I haven't run into a single problem. I mean, the town I live in, you know, it's not the most people in the town are anti-gun, but like, it. The main thing in Vermont is nobody like lives here, so to speak. So like, since it's then you like, have the freedom to do whatever you want. Yeah, you can pretty much do what you want. Like, I live in the middle of the woods pretty much, and so I'll. One time, my brother, who also reenacts a bit, and my friend uh, got all our gear on and. Like during like when quarantine first started and went to film a little movie and just walked down the road with our guns and all our gear and some people gave us little odd looks but other than that like nothing happened. I think you're probably one of the youngest um, persons to date on this podcast to talk about living history and so let me fly this hypothesis that I have formulated over the last few years. What do your 17 year old 18 year old counterparts think of your hobby of reenacting? That's a good question. I mean, my friends, like, um, it's kind of nice. So one, I have like actually one friend who is, um, he's interested. Um, he likes world war two. He likes, uh, military history, all that. Um, he just doesn't really do the reenacting stuff mostly cause I don't think he wants to really spend all the money cause it is so expensive. Do but, people um, think you're weird? I'm sure plenty. I've, think plenty of people like you know think i'm weird like at my school but none of my friends really well see my hypothesis is this is you're a younger cat and you're a generation and the generation a few years older than you you guys grew up watching well not so much your generation but the the cats who are like in their mid-20s now they grew up watching big bang theory and big bang theory popularized comic books which is why now everybody and their grandmother loves comic books for an old 42 year old like me um, if you were into comic books in high school, Revenge of the Nerds is way before your time, but you were considered a big geek and a nerd and reenacting used to be frowned upon. But my hypothesis is, is with the proliferation and popularization of Big Bang Theory and their lust for comic books and comic con and dressing up in cosplay, I think that amongst your generation, maybe a little bit older, the common acceptance of cosplay and how cool it is, quote unquote, that kind of carries probably would carry over to being less ridiculed to you as a reenactor. Whereas old people like me and my old counterparts, when I first got in the hobby, they're looking at me like I'm one of these weird outcasts. Like, are you LARPing? Are you a LARPer? No, it's kind of like cosplay, but the people I dress up of actually existed instead of, you know, being in a movie or a comic book. But, it, and I'm not going after cosplayers because once again, the social acceptance of cosplaying makes it a little bit easier and understanding and less alien for the general public when talking about reenactors and living historians. Do you, do you kind of feel the same way, Matt? Well, yeah. I'm speaking of Comic-Con, uh, that is kind of my home turf here. So I've yeah. worked Comic-Con many years and we've actually found reenactors going to those things, having no idea that we actually existed as a nonprofit organization. 
So we've actually recruited people from like Comic-Con, WonderCon, uh, the Los Angeles one. So it's it's pretty booming with the cosplay community, which is kind of a stark comparison com- well, compared to your previous topic of firearms, seeing as we're probably one of the most controlled states mm-hmm. and half the World War II firearms are illegal here. And if they find it, they destroy it. So, <sighs> How, I mean, so- we, we also have a governor who decided that we're going to have background checks on ammunition. Well, not like like I said, not to get too political, but the government, the on the federal level, they're trying to do the same thing. And if mm. this, if you guys aren't uh, up to date on the gun laws they're trying to pass, if this thing passes, anybody who's listening to this podcast who's a living historian, you're going to have to fill out an application to have the rights to display a historical weapon. So basically, to take your weapon out to an event, you're going to have to get the federal government's permission the good news is if there is any that the person who's trying to pass this has been trying to pass it forever and a day and always gets shot down the bad side is now they're in control of the house <laughs> the, the senate and the white house and so there is a scarier likelihood of this thing passing um not only obviously the ars the 10 round magazines but that's another topic for but as far as the sake of this podcast they actually have a thing about historical weapons and basically you have to get a background check um, a mental illness check just to be able to display that. So if this thing goes through, um, living history as we know it is going to take a big kick. Now, you guys are in California and Vermont. I'm here in Florida. Um, you guys are all aware of the Pulse nightclub shooting a few years back over in Orlando. That tragedy, one of the things that we're dealing with down here in Florida ever since that tragedy, and I try to give the state of Florida credit, I'm... I'm marking this up as a um, way to prevent a waste of manpower. Okay, we got 10 minutes left, and we'll have to uh, stop and restart, but we'll deal with that in 10 minutes. Um, I give them credit as a way of trying to do this as a prevent waste of manpower, but ever since then, we can no longer have living history events or reenactments on state-ran parks with weapons that use brass cartridges. So if you're doing Civil War... Spanish-American War, anything with black powder, they can still do live firing. But if it has a brass cartridge, you can only do static displays. And the reason I'm trying to give them credit, and I could be completely wrong, but I'm just assuming, and look, we can try to police up all our brass all we want, but truth be told, things get overlooked. And so you have an event on Friday and Saturday. Tuesday rolls around, someone's out walking their dog, and they see shell casings all over the place. What are they going to do? They're going to call the cops. Cops are going to have to come out, set up and investigate, and realize these are blank cartridges. and just wasted a bunch of man hours. I could be completely wrong. I'm just hoping this is the case and not just them saying, oh, well, we don't like living history. But with that being said, we have lost a lot of events down here on state park ran, um, state-run parks because of that. And so, is that sort of a Florida thing right now? Yeah, it's been a Florida thing for two or three years. So, um, like, we here in Florida, um, me personally – um, the biggest events I do now is in Georgia and Alabama, um, at Alabama at Fort Morgan, uh, this year it's a little, it's a little condensed because of COVID policies. We canceled it last year, but the two years ago we had the 75th anniversary of Peleliu and then Tarawa, uh, the, uh, maybe vice versa for the first one. We actually had a landing craft out there. I think Matthew, if you watch one of my videos with the photos, you'll actually see me a picture of me riding a landing craft that was at the Alabama event. Um, which was really great. And then the video I posted today where you hear me scream about the muzzle blast and shooting over my head, that was this January up in um, 
up in Georgia at a Boy Scout camp. For you guys listening, if you don't know this, you can rent out a Boy Scout camp and they'll give you a full run of the place. So if you're looking for a place to do tactical events, um, just get online, look for Boy Scout camp, find out what it costs to rent the place out, and then just organize something on your Facebook pages. And this place is so big, we have like four-hour-long tactical events. I mean, we're out walking eight miles, and you get Germans in there, and it's and it goes all day long. It's fantastic. Now, hopefully, with all the crap the Boy Scouts are going through, we don't lose those access to this camp, so they have to liquidate all their properties because of all the lawsuits. But as of right now, if you guys are looking for a private property to hold tactical events on because of COVID and the, everything getting shut down, just call up your local Boy Scout summer camp, see how much it costs to rent the place. And it's they'll be down for it. private property because pretty much everything we do in California it has to be on private property. We're not going to get involved with any of the city permissions because it's a pretty big ordeal. Yeah. Unless we're trying to make a big event, which hasn't been a thing in a while. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that's, and, and a place like California, I mean, especially if you're like trying to do a PTO thing or like a Navy base thing, obviously you can do European theater operations. Cause we do down here in Florida, but it does look a little weird to have the palm trees and the Spanish moss in the backgrounds, but we still do ETO down here as well. But it's just sad to hear that. Uh, we'll be right back guys. Hold tight. Spam was introduced by Hormel in 1937. The product was intended to increase the sales of pork shoulder, which wasn't very popular at the time. Hormel claims the meaning of the name is known only by a small circle of former Hormel food executives, but popular beliefs are that the name is an abbreviation for spiced ham, spare meat, or shoulder of pork and ham. Another popular explanation is spam is actually an acronym standing for specially processed army meat. Due to the difficulties of delivering fresh meat to the front during World War II, Spam became an ubiquitous part of the United States soldiers' diet. Some jokingly referred to Spam as ham that didn't pass its physical or meatloaf without basic training. By the war's end, over 150 pounds of Spam had been purchased by the United States military. During World War II and the occupations that followed, Spam was introduced into Guam, Hawaii, Okinawa, and the Philippines as well as other islands in the Pacific. As consequences of World War II's rationing in the Lend-Lease Act, Spam also gained prominence in the United Kingdom. In addition to increasing production for the United Kingdom, Hormel also expanded output as part of the Allies' aid to the similarly beleaguered Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev once declared, without Spam we wouldn't have been able to feed our army. Throughout the war, countries ravaged by conflict and faced with strict food rationings came to appreciate the value of spam. And we are back for the second half of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. This episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. Even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, they can help you as long as you have working internet. Give them a call at 239-283-1120 or hit them up on act-capecrawl.com and they can log in your computer and help you with all your computer problems remotely via their website with your permission. Once again, that's act-capecrawl.com or 239-283-1120. Not only do they do do computer repair, they do network expansions, uh, two-form authentication for remote logins, especially during COVID. You don't want to use remote desktop. That's not secure at all. Online backups, two-form authentication, like I just said, antiviruses, plus much, much more. Give them a call, 239-283-1120. You know, for the long-lasting listeners of this podcast, you know that I interviewed um, the historian, actually two of the, they don't like to be called historians, they like to be called um Anyhow, I interviewed the guy from uh, Goodyear and the guy from John Deere about their contributions to World War II. And as you just heard, I did my little spam advertisement there. I have reached out to Hormel 
trying to get an archivist from them to come on to talk about the advent of spam and the production and all that. So that's one of the things I like to do on this podcast. Like I said, we had a guy on from John Deere, Goodyear. Um, if you guys haven't heard it, go back and listen to, I had two of the, um, the historians on from the, or the original Springfield Armory. And we talked about John Guerin and all, and how Washington, George Washington founded the site for the Springfield Armory and how the modern day firearms are not the same Springfield Armory of the day. So if you guys haven't heard that, maybe I'll post that one up again here soon, but joining us, for part two, as before, we have Matthew and Tyler. Now, Matthew, before we went to break, we were talking about how out in California, when you guys do reenacting, you pretty much have to rely on private property because of how hard it is to get things done publicly with the government down there. Yeah, so we have a lot of private property owners that we pretty much know and we talk with and we're on pretty good terms with. So when it comes down to using private property, we have our locations all secured. And... One of the cool sites we have is over in Yukaipa, and we actually have a full World War One, or should I say, two trench systems nice. going back and forth for both the Central Powers and the Allies. And so, since they already have the logistics set up, then obviously they already have the liability insurance stuff all set up. You guys just do a cover yeah, we have everything it's all taken um, care of. Eyes dotted, T's crossed. We want to make sure we cover our backs, have insurance, make sure our members are covered, make sure everyone pays their fair share. So that way everything's legit. Everyone has a good time and they know it's going to be here for years to come. When you guys, let's pretend it's 2019. How is the reenacting community in California? Is it pretty large? Well, I think it used to be pretty large, but then I think a lot of that generation is slowly kind of fading away. They have families and other duties. People are getting older. But then there's a whole new resurgence coming up of younger generations, like Tyler. Kind of like Tyler here. Yeah, and Tyler, it's so important, and we got to figure out a way to get you. Um, since there's nothing in your area, have you gone on? I mean, you're on Instagram, but have you actively looked on Facebook? I know Facebook <laughs> is, is a dying character, but that's where most of the uh, reenacting is scheduled. Like here in Florida, we have the Florida the Florida Preservation Historical Society, and we're, regardless if you do World War II, um, Civil War, whatever. Basically, all of our the interest for events, the scheduling events, and all that is managed through those groups. And you know, if you find a centralized group, you may might you may okay. There's nothing really going on in Vermont, but over in Pennsylvania, things are bigger. Over in Ohio, or you may just have to schlep down to some Georgia events at some point. Um, but yeah, you. I mean, you are. I don't want to sound like an old '90s song, but children of. When it comes to this hobby, man, uh, the the younger cats, you guys are going to have to take over. Because, I mean, I'm 42, and I'm kind of considered young in this hobby. I mean, I go out to events. I was just at a tactical event with guys in their 60s. And to do a four-mile march in your 60s, and you know, it gets harder and harder. And so after, after a certain point, you know, you kind of phase out into doing just the living history displays. And after a while, even that becomes too much. And, um, yeah, it's definitely... It's definitely one of those things that ebbs and flows, but we definitely need more and more of the younger cats out there. So we got to figure out a way to get you more active into the hobby. Yeah, yeah another I'm, thing you have is like the younger generation have energy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on a bunch of um, Facebook groups. I I downloaded it, the app like last year for the sole purpose of finding out um, more World War II reenactment related stuff. It's, and it. 
as odd as it's going to sound, I'm going to tell you to go on Facebook and I'll even send you the link through your Instagram page. Go ahead and sign up for the Florida Historical Preservation Society because even though we're Florida, we're almost turning into the East Coast Historical Preservation Society because once again, the event out of Alabama gets linked on there. The event in Georgia gets linked on there. And so we're kind of becoming the lower East Coast because... You know, it's just, you know, it's crazy because we'll go to Georgia, right? And now granted, it's only 40 minutes past the Florida border, but we'll go to Georgia and the Florida reenactors make up most of the population. When we go to Alabama, we're a good portion of the population for the first year. Second year, a lot of our guys couldn't go, but, um, Florida's always representing. So you might be surprised to find that if you join up to that group, you may find events going on in Georgia and maybe parts of Tennessee that, yeah, it's still a long haul, but as Matthew could probably attest to you, part of this, two things go hand in hand with this hobby. One is buying uniforms and two is buying gas because it's it's always about a long travel to get to these yeah. events. I think the longest I've done has been a 12-hour drive. My bucket list is the event up in Ohio, the D-Day event. Um, that's going to be like a 19-hour drive for me, which is kind of hard with work and owning my own business. But um, I'm hoping maybe next year when they reopen it, I'll be able to go to that one. But um, it's definitely hand-in-hand hand, is buying uniforms and paying for gas. Oh, which actually, I have absolutely no idea how I forgot about this one. But when I, I lied when I said that I'd only gone to an event in Reading. Um, because last year, we went to the 75th anniversary of Market Garden in the Netherlands. I saw, I saw the photo on your Instagram of a tank, and you said in the Netherlands, and I was going to send you a... A message yep. saying, did you go there or did you just steal that photo off the internet? So you actually went overseas? Yep. We went how overseas. was that? That was awesome. That was that was incredible. I don't know how I forgot about that. How, but um how was that arranged? Was that a family trip? You and your uncle? Was that like a that was a family trip? My dad went to college for a little bit in Germany. Okay. And we'd all he'd always wanted us to go anyway. And so we went to um we just decided to go to the reenactment too. And so I packed like a massive duffel bag of gear and like security asked me many many questions oh i can and imagine then, especially on the way back because i was like coming back with like three different like knives in my in my bag and you know and which is and it's it's so crazy because it's so different over there like up here like up like in america like when i was in reading people were just carrying their guns around like no one even cared no. and then you go to the reenactment in the netherlands and i was wearing like an m3 knife on my boot because mm -hmm. i was doing 101st nope. and some guy up to me and he's like you know you can't you can't wear that here yeah like, you uh, might get and uh, i was like oh okay here momentarily not to use a catchphrase i want to circle back to what matthew was saying about the gun laws in there but to, on your point, um, when I first got in this hobby, I was talking to some reenactors via Facebook over in Europe and in those areas. A lot of those towns, if you're a reenactor, your M1 Garand is a permanent resident in the town armory. <laughs> and it can't even have a working firing pen. So I, I guess they don't even do blanks over there. I guess everybody's just yelling bang, bang. Or I, maybe yeah. every once in a while they do do blanks. But from what I understand, they're not working at all. And even still, after the event, you have to go surrender them to the town armory. You cannot keep them in your possession outside the event. That To me, that is crazy. Yeah, one yeah. of the biggest questions I see over in Europe is, how do I turn my Denix into something that looks more realistic? So they're all uh -huh. getting the, top, the prop toy guns, and they're trying to make them look legitimate so they can actually use them for photographs. You know, I, it, I was looking around because I have the Denik Thompson. 
the one which, by the way, Denick, if I, I know you're not listening because you're in Spain, but you sell the type, you sell the Colorado, the Chicago typewriter has the cuts compensator on it, which is fine. But then you sell the what's supposed to be the M1928, which still has the top charging handle, but it has the barrel of the M1A1. It doesn't have the cuts compensator. So why not just make it the M1928 with the cuts compensator to make it look more authentic? But Matthew, to you, if you get those questions, the answer is Brillo pads. I oh yeah, we've I, done it to plenty. Yeah. Also, you did buy it, so they have no reason to change it. Yeah, I exactly. Well, well, to be honest with you, I bought mine because, as I said, it took me a year to put my impression together, but I couldn't afford a rifle, so I put I got the Denix for my living history display, and then when I fell in with the first ID at the time here in Florida, it was ran by this guy named John Thomas who was a, a police officer. And what he would do is he put together a first ID group and they would go around to these museums and he figured out a way to get paid by them. But then he would take that money and buy more uniforms. And then what he would do is he would find cats Tyler's age and a little bit younger, actually the authentic age, who knew that the biggest barrier to entry into this hobby was to the uniforms and the gear. And so he actually owned like six or seven M1s and a bunch of uniforms. And he would show up with trailer. And it was like, basically he was... He was creating what people thought we all do anyhow, which is just show up to some place and get outfitted in somebody else's uniforms. He actually created that. And so what he would find young kids coming to these events who were local and talk to him and say, well, hang out. I got a uniform. I can outfit you. And he would find these kids who were interested in it. But before, you know, because one of the problems with kids are they change their mind, right? And if you have a parent who's gone through this many times and tired of spending money, they're, they're going to be less likely to um, allow their kids to get involved because they don't want to spend the money. And so these kids would keep coming back, and they would slowly start building their impression. Hey, John, I don't need to borrow your pants this time because I already got a pair, so I just need everything else. And so he would actually allow me to use his M1s. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have been able to participate in live firing events. He had M1s, 1903. He had a he had a, a the Ohio Ordnance Browning Automatic Rifle that I got to use. And uh, he finally, he actually started working full-time for World War II Armor, and he ended up selling all that gear off to my buddy um, who took over. And so he has all that stuff now. But, yeah, um, so I was the same way. So the, my Denix was my first thing, and it wasn't until I started working. In, I worked in radio for like six years before I did this. And so it wasn't until I was working in radio plus my computer gig that I was able to get some money together. But sadly, at the time when I got my M1, uh, CMP was sold out. They hadn't got the imports in mm -hmm. yet. This is before they got the, the ton of them from Korea and before they got the 1911s. So I went to a local gun show. And it's so funny because I worked in radio. And one of the things we did in radio is we give away free T-shirts. And so I got free passes to the gun show. And I showed up early. But I was still like 20th in line. And when they opened the door, everybody started lining up for free T-shirts. Well, I got a closet full of T-shirts. So I went ahead and did a quick lap around the gun store. Found the one guy selling an M1. And sadly, it's an international arms company. So it's not a Springfield. Everything else is Springfield except for that upper receiver. Um, Tyler, your mic's muted. I don't know if you know that. Um, so it has the International yeah. Arms Code, but I, I've never had a problem with it because I've done some research. I know like the early, like the first thousand they put out, they had problems with head spacing, but my serial number's way up. But kind of talking, going back to the gun law things, I use my International Arms Co. at Living History events to explain the insanity of assault rifle bands. <laughs> and people are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this rifle used to be a Springfield Armory rifle. But back in the 80s when they had the assault rifle ban, it was illegal for a citizen to own this. 
So what did they do? They took off the upper receiver, cut it in half, and then this company up in Canada made the exact same thing, except for the serial number was never issued to the military, put it on, and then it was legal for civilian use. And so they basically destroyed historical parts just to put on a civilian-made version, and it made no changes to the gun. Still the exact same gun, still semi-automatic, but that's just how ludicrous it was back then that you couldn't own weapons of war just because a serial number had been issued to the military. So they stamped out one up in Canada, popped it on. It's the same darn thing, except for the serial numbers on the side instead of the back. But um, so mine's not a true to form Springfield because they they weren't to be had. I think at the time, the only thing CMP had were like the, the collector's edition and who wants to take a $3,000 rifle out into the field and beat it up. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I unfortunately, I don't have a Springfield right now, but that's still on my bucket list. But going back to what you're saying, Matthew, you were saying like you can't have historical weapons if they find them, they'll destroy them. What's that? How? No, I mean like anything that's uh, automatic is illegal. Anything that can fire more than ten rounds, they don't like. Uh, we've banned the whole magazine thing. Although they are, I think they may have reversed one of those, saying it was unconstitutional or something. Yeah, so I'm not sure what the latest is. So we keep changing it. So what you're telling me is you won't see too many uh, bars at your all's events. <laughs> Um, just the guy who can afford a nice reproduction semi-auto one yeah, for some fortune. Them. Yeah, there's like six grand out of Ohio ordinance, and they're on back order because I know a couple. Of, um, I was out two years ago. We got the podcast got invited out to the National Museum of Pacific War out in Fredericksburg, Texas. And if you guys have never been there, you got to go. I, I often joke around saying they're the Universal Studios of World War II reenacting. Head over to my YouTube channel. It's uh, youtube.com forward slash C for channel and forward slash digital 410. And scroll back a few years and you'll see I actually filmed, or you can just Google um, National Museum of Pacific War Fredericksburg. If mine doesn't pop up, somebody else will, but mine actually have back backstage scenes of the museum. But when you see their living history area, it's called the battlefield. They have landing craft come out on track. They got um, water grenades going off simulating mortar strikes you have the marines coming out of a stationary alligator um at the end they have a real firing flamethrower that shoots into the bunker and you can actually feel the heat out in the crowd they have sound system and i actually got to participate in the event so i flew out to texas with all my gear i just used their rifle so i didn't have to deal with the tsa but the reason i bring this up is they actually had a real open bolt browning automatic rifle now, for those of us who shoot modern day stuff and, and you know, and you know, when carbines and when garrons, I have, like I said, my buddy John had the reproduction Ohio ordinance one, which is a closed bolt. When you're used to shooting modern day weapons and then you have a open bolt rifle, it's so weird. You think the thing's not charged. It's it, it, to get used to that. And you kind of think, wasn't this a design flaw? How easy is it to get sand, dirt, and debris inside your bolt when it's an open bolt system? But yeah, that was the first time I ever shot an open bolt, but. It's it's a crazy gun. Sure. I should say we do have exceptions to the whole like automatic weapons thing because we are Hollywood here. Mm-hmm. And if you want it, you can find it. It will just cost you lots and lots of money. That's correct, Matthew. Um, I don't want to be that guy. But for those of you who don't know, gun laws are simply a way to keep poor people from having guns. Because as Matthew pointed out, even as a civilian, you can get a fully automatic rifle. You just got to yeah, be able to afford. You have to have some sort of purpose. Like if you want to get that class three firearms license, you're probably a rental company. So it's, it's few and, and far and, between. In California, yes. But in Florida, no. In other states, you just have to have the money for the class three firearms license. Mm-hmm. Um, just like with this new gun law that we're talking about. 
oh, you can have a 30-round magazine. They just want to put a $200 piece tax stamp on it. So once again, they're not saying you can't have it. They're just saying if you can't afford it, you can't have it. So that's the weird thing about a lot of this stuff is, oh, you can have a fully automatic rifle. Well, you can't. You just need a Class 3 firearms license. What do I need to do that? A background check and a fat check book. <laughs> oh, okay. So there are ways. It's, it's a lot of money. Um, for example, the guy who owns World War II armor. He was in the Navy for years. Started a business afterwards. Very lucrative. The guy personally owns... I think he's up to seven tanks now. <laughs> he's got <laughs> fully automatic or real grease guns. He's got 30 cows, 50 cows. And all it takes is just the ability to afford the background check, having a secure place to store all the stuff. I was just watching Save It Private Ryan tonight, and I looked at my, my fiance. I said, see that tank right there? Yep. My buddy owns that now. <laughs> I mean, he has it in his collection. He's restoring it so that whenever they do reenactments the germans will have a tank so he actually has the one they used in saver private ryan and this, the same one from band of brothers it's in his collection it's he did an off-the-frame restoration on it so that when we do um reenactments with tanks the germans will have something instead of being because usually what happens now is we just dig a trench and, <laughs> and blast the hell out of them and send them flying across the room was well, that the tiger tank they had at the last scene that's a russian conversion yeah um i saw it when he first got it and it's very all that basically all the armor on the side of it is just spray painted plywood and for some reason, they never did any internal shots from that, right? None of those movies, and the entire, and the entire, the entire inside of it was completely empty and gutted out. It's basically just the, the steering wheel and the seat. And so he basically, I mean, he's restoring it to historical value. The only thing he does to those tanks that aren't historical, which he has to do for liability, is he puts cameras on the outside. He hides them so you can't see them. But that way, his drivers have 360 degree view because when you're out in a field. Um, and spectators around and maneuvering them, you can't take that risk of having those blind spots. So they do have cameras mounted on them in hidden strategic areas so that he, their drivers inside have a full 360 view of what's going on with people walking around. Funny, because our tanks in California, they don't care about that. They just want to make sure your breach is welded shut. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is dangerous. I mean, we've all heard the story of the, of the cats who were doing that show for Discovery Channel three or four years ago. And um, they're... They had a misfire or whatever, and when they unloaded it, it went off and ended up, they didn't die right away, but the shock ended up killing the, the tank crew on that uh, his, that Discovery Channel shoot. So, I mean, out there, you guys can't even do blank firings, huh? Well, some people like to put blanks into it. like they Shotgun blanks? Into it and then shoot a shotgun out the middle of it. I'll tell you what, you haven't lived until you've been doing an event and you had a real tank blank round go off. <laughs> I was out at his. Yeah, that's that's something we're missing, but you know, you still it is get, what it is. You still get the enjoyment of laying on the ground and having the rumble as that thing pulls up on you. Um, it definitely brings it to a whole new level. But um, I we kind of got sidetracked. So, Tyler, you went overseas. You're walking around with a uh, M2 knife on your leg, and I said, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, um, yeah." How how was it like? What was it like over there? From what I understand, they at least appreciate at least up till 10 years ago that you know they they appreciated the history so much because you know it truly affected them that um even to this day they were like super thankful for everything that the allies did for them and primarily yeah that is that's definitely true um yeah there were like literally people who said thank you just for being americans yeah like i'm not even kidding and um they like most like 
basically everybody in the Netherlands speaks English, but like it's not their first language, I mm-hmm. guess. And so like sometimes I wouldn't exactly like at one point one one nice guy came up to me because I was like dressed in all my gear that I could have fit with me. So I had like, you know, a lot on um, plus new stuff that I bought that day. And he like said something um, in Dutch for like four minutes before he like realized that I was in fact American and could not understand him. And then he switched to English and he just wanted to take a picture with me. But that, it was it was really cool. Did you um, did you do like the battlefield tour while you're out there? We so what it was is they were doing um a convoy of like I forget how many vehicles, but it was a lot of vehicles um through a bunch of towns, and so we caught them on one of their days. That'd be so where cool. they and they would stop and set up camps, and so we went for a day and. Um, there was like a whole field of tents and displays and a bunch of vendors and just like so many vehicles, um, like the tank that I have the picture of and just so much stuff that it was like awesome. And then they'd have um, like, it's not like the some reenactments that I went to, like the one in Reading where they had like different sides all set up. Like they didn't have Germans or um, uh, like, like Germans, they didn't have um, battles. They didn't do any of that, but it was still super cool just because there was so much stuff there. Yeah, once again, and, it's hard to do like, battles when everybody's just out there yelling bang, bang because they can't fire planes. Yeah, exactly, that too. And like, it just makes up for it entirely because like, it's one thing to go to, you know, Pennsylvania and be like, oh, cool, like World War Two, But it's another thing to go to the Netherlands and stand in the exact spot that it actually happened because mm-hmm. then it just means a lot more. Yeah, I had a gentleman on a few years back who actually – went down to um, Tarawa and mm-hmm. around That's the really Pacific cool. and was seeing that stuff. And he was saying, you know, you walk to the jungle and there's still pigtails laying around. Those are the, uh, yeah. the stakes you put in the ground to string up the bob wire and stuff. And yeah, it's, that's, you know, that's awesome. My bucket list, but that's, you know, getting overseas to, to see some of that stuff would just be a dream come true. But, you know, it's kind of interesting what you're saying about the convoy. One of the reasons the Fort Morgan event, is my favorite, not only is it PTO themed, but because it takes place on a fort and the fort is surrounded by berms. It's one of the few events where you can actually park all the cars and everything modern out behind the berms so that when mm-hmm. you're actually in your bivouac and you wake up at five in the morning or six in the morning and you get up and you do a 360 with the exception of the outdoor public bathroom that's like 500 yards away. Everything is air correct. It's just nothing but tents and guys in the same uniforms. You don't have the hot dog stand up there in the corner. You don't have the, yeah. you know, all the cars out in the parking lot. And so until the public shows up, it's, it's like as cool as, as you can get. And then, like I said, the first year when we had the um, landing crafts, it was parked down at the marina a mile and a half away. And basically my, my uh, group did this. Not everybody did. A lot of them were, which we're kind of disappointed. A lot of the guys hopped in the, the uh, deuce and a half and rode the mile. Not we all got in full gear and we did a force march and to be in full force march for a mile, mile and a half with 50, 60 guys. It's just, it just brings it all more, just makes it all more because correct me if I'm wrong. And I tell people with the exception of, and thank God we don't want to live the horrors of war, but we, the one thing we get to do in this hobby and Matthew probably agree is we literally get to walk a mile in their shoes. And so it's nice to be able to do that sort of thing. Cause how often you get to get in a parade march with 50 guys in the same, wearing the same gear and just march down to a landing craft. 
I think yeah, we're the only community out there that will endure pain and suffering and freezing cold temperatures and miserable night after night for fun. Yeah. Um, I don't know about that. I don't know. I'm a, I'm mountaineer. I'm a, he's not that hardcore yet. You're not, you're not a, uh, you're not, uh, January this year was the first time in six years. I took a sleeping bag to an event. I'm usually the hardcore guy. My normal outfit is I take my, my two shelter house, four wool blankets, and that's it. I use my haversack as my pillow. Uh, but this year in Georgia, I heard it was going to get down to the high twenties. And so I, Took my five blankets, shelter half. I stopped the tractor supply, got a bale of square hay, and I got a summer sleeping bag from Walmart. Went there, mm-hmm. set up my tent, threw the hay on the ground, put the summer sleeping bag, then my five um, wool blankets over it. Actually, hay, the floor to my tent, one wool blanket, sleeping bag, and then the rest of the wool blankets. And it did. It, it rained all day Friday, and then we went to bed. I got up Saturday. All the rain was ice on my truck. It got down to like... 31 that night and i'm glad i had the sleeping bag but you know kind of like matthew said we're one of the only people out there regardless if you do take the yoga mat and the sleeping bag you're still doing it you're still yeah. going out there and sleeping on the ground and and for most of us that's i mean i don't know very many other 42 two year olds who go camping when they go camping they're talking about sleeping in rvs and vinyl tents how many of them actually sleep on the ground under a wool blanket on a, on a piece of dirt well, yeah. on the half of all of us city people over here in Southern California, on one half, it's kind of nice because we get away from the city. But on the other hand, you guys don't you count a lot of 17 year olds who are not prepared. Well, no, I, was, I was laughing because I say you guys don't count because you guys got like 100,000 homeless people sleeping in the street every night. So that don't count. Yeah, but we're out in the middle of nowhere and no one's going to go out to where we go. So yeah. that's part of that's part of the nice thing. We get away from the cities. If your cell phone doesn't work, then it's like, hey, that's better because we're not distracted. We actually get to do things correctly, more or less. You know, every once in a while, I'll find what we call a campaigner. They had a few of them at the Georgia event. I'm just too old and too tall. I'm six foot five. So for the logistics of me sleeping in a foxhole are long gone uh, so as far as authentic as i get asleep on the dirt ground but there were a couple of guys who dug foxholes and slept out in the foxhole on friday um, but i'm too tall for that um, and at my age i find my back is good for about five hours on the ground and then i just toss and turn and wake up at five in the morning i will say at that event um, due to some help of some certain beverages i was able to get eight hours of sleep even in the cold because um i planned ahead if you will but uh that's the and and that's the other my my other favorite part of this is going to an event is the only time that i can get away with not answering text messages or answer my cell phone because my friends realize that as far as i'm concerned the phone don't exist the only time i pull my phone out an event is to take photos and i try to do that at a minimum I'll go, and that is kind of my beef. I understand that they grew up around and they're addicted, but some of the events I go to that do have the younger cats, they do spend a lot of time on their cell phones. It's like, don't you want to unplug for three days and just enjoy this? Yeah, for sure. So, man, yeah, I've go ahead. I want your internet. Your internet's What's breaking that? out. Oh, we're running out of time, and we've already gone another ten minutes. Wow, forty minutes. We got nine minutes left. But Tyler, your internet's breaking up. That's all right. So Matthew, um, what do you want to give a plug to your museum? Um, yeah, actually, I'm going to give a plug out to my reenactment group. Sure, because we're all kind of tied together through there. 
Yeah, we're called the Historical Unit of Southern California. And you can find us online. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and uh, uh, we have a website, which is www.thehuskhusc.com. So it's the Historical Unit of Southern California. I think we may have lost Tyler. His internet's dropping in now. Uh, one of the things we do, Matthew, and I'll ask you to do this too, is after just send me a message with all the URLs. If you have a YouTube channel, Facebook, anything you want me to share, because for every episode I put out on Instagram, Twitter, Twitter, Instagram, wow. Every episode I put out on all the, the podcast apps, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, I also put a page on our website, WTSP, with photos and links to the guest to their groups, their social media, and same thing to you, Tyler. If you want people to get follow you on Instagram, um, maybe you can find a group that way. But please, both you send me links to anything you want put up on the the website, as well as some of your photos of, you know, in your case, Matthew, some of your your Jeep and uh, uniform pics, and Tyler, you and some of your your impressions and that. But um, okay. it's, a, it's such a hard question for you, Matthew, because your state is still up in the air. I was going to say. When do you think you guys might actually be able to put together an event? I mean, the only thing we can do right now are small things, but it's going to open up eventually. And yeah. I'm hoping around April, May, there'll have been enough vaccine going around where people are comfortable, things open back up. And then the moment we can do things like camping and uh, hanging out with people, go out to all these different locations that were previously closed down, mm -hmm. and we're going to be back pretty much in business. And if we just have to wear masks, so be it. But at least we'll be able to do something. You guys couldn't even get away with organizing something on private property right now, could you? Um, yeah, a lot of private organizations can do whatever they want. But then what happens if it gets leaked out of the press? We could be done as reenactors. Yeah, that's true. That's a shame. Yeah, so we're playing it safe, but we're anything we do, it's masked, socially distant. And then once this is over, we're going to be back. Yeah. We're still alive, though. We're not going anywhere. Yeah, and uh, we definitely need the younger cats to uh, start getting interested in uh, talking to parents. And uh, here's a thought: instead of getting a new PS5 for six hundred dollars, go out and get you a pair of trousers, a boots, and a, and a and a tunic, and get started in the hobby. That'll get you. Gotta get there. your boots first. Boots yeah. are the most important. Get your boots. Um, don't buy the Chinese stuff. But um, as we were saying before, people are getting out of this hobby all the time, and um, so one of the things I suggest: do your due diligence. But go on eBay, and if they're saying, hey, this is from At the Front, or if they're saying this is from World War II Impression, buy the used stuff. There's no reason to buy the brand new stuff and pay the full freight. If you, uh, My my Cochran jump boots, I got off eBay for 80 bucks because the guy had them for four years, wore them eight times. He was getting out of the hobby. So I bought mm -hmm. them. Facebook groups. The marketplace on Facebook has an mm -hmm. amazing assortment of used reenacting items. And there's no reason to go out and buy $130 trousers and then take a picture, and everybody's going to say, your uniform's too clean. It's Farby. So just buy the yeah. buy somebody else's stuff that's already dirty. It's already got the holes and the wear and tear in it. Me personally, when I buy the new stuff, I don't artificially. And you guys who listen to the show know this. I've said it so many times. I don't artificially weather my stuff because once again, the guys out in the battlefield they get a clean uniform. They think they're going to go rub it in the dirt for it first. No, they're going to put it on and enjoy it. With that being said, I don't wash my uniforms. That's why I have Steve out in the garage. For those who don't know, Steve is my mannequin. So whenever I get to home from an event, I take my uniform off, I put it on in Steve, and it airs out in the garage for like two weeks, and then I take it off and I put it in my closet. So all the dirt's there, all the sweat stains are in the appropriate spots, but 
it doesn't have the stench. And one thing that I've learned from my friends in the Civil War reenacting, which Matthew probably already knows, if your uniforms do get a mite gamey, apparently what you do is you put them in the freezer for a few days and it kills all the bacteria and the smell goes away. So there's it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I actually have an opposite approach. Oh, yeah? Yeah, my thing is if I'm going to wear a uniform, let's put myself back in the 1940s. I don't want to wear a dirty un- uniform, so I'm going to wash it when I can. Mm-hmm. So I wear it like normal. I wash it. I use it. I wash it. I use it. So that way it's got the shrinkage on it. It's got the normal kind of wear parts to it from just washing it. Now, I don't put bleach and put it in the dryer. Sure. I actually wash it like you probably would have washed it back then. You use some hot water. You wash it. You scrub it down by hand. Let it hang dry. You iron it. You do what you got to do to make it look nice. And then you get out there and you abuse it. You use it like it's intended to be used. That is the reason why I don't wear my wool trousers at reenactments. I'll wear them at living history events. But the reason I don't wear my wool trousers in the field is because I only own one pair and I want to keep them looking nice for my class A uniform. Because as somebody who's six foot five and 219 pounds, and speaking of eBay, I actually found a guy getting out of the hobby who sold me his Eisenhower jacket and it actually fits. It's taken me six years to find an Eisenhower jacket because I couldn't find an affordable Class A jacket, the full-length one. And so now, because for a while I had to do Class B, I'd wear my wool trousers with my M1 jacket. I had two M1 jackets, one that's dirty from the field and one that I only wore to keep it clean for USO shows. So now that I have an Eisenhower jacket, I have a clean Class A uniform, and I'll just have to buy a pair of second wool trousers to wear out in the field to get the dirty and the muck and the grime and stuff. But no, I I, I feel you, but more often than not, I'm out and doing... Um, living history display that's supposed to show the battle side of it. So I just, you know, once again, I don't artificially wear it, but like my Marine Corps uniform, for example, is six years old now. So, and I'm here in Florida. So like it's faded in the right spots and has the gun oil in the right spots and everything else. But um, Tyler, do you have any uh, final words before we uh, wrap up this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast? No, not, not that I can think of. I mean, you know, I just have a great time doing it. I think one thing that I was going to mention earlier when you were talking about Jeeps and all that is I think I was like very lucky that the first car that I ever got to drive long before I had my license was a Jeep from 1944. Nice. So yeah. That was pretty awesome. Learned to drive manual in that. Um, I drove a deuce and a half, um, rode in a deuce and a half. Just had like, you know, so many awesome opportunities that, you know, you can't get anywhere else, really. And I wish we had more time. Maybe we'll bring Matthew on for a follow-up episode. Uh, one of the added benefits, even if you don't live in California, if you're into this hobby, and I mentioned this on a TikTok the other day, reenactors get hired to be extras because it saves the production company money on uniforms. <laughs> and so, But that I, being said, make sure you don't do things for free because you are valuable. Yes. Um <laughs> And for those of you guys who have Disney Plus and have yet to watch uh, The Right Stuff, go turn on The Right Stuff, watch the pilot episode, and when they're in the uh, Officers Club in uh, Virginia, you'll see my happy ass smoking a cigarette in the background of that whole scene, and then on episode four, when they're doing a countdown on New Year's Eve from the stage, I am the tall guy in the middle of the NASA employees on New Year's Eve, so I've actually done background work on two episodes of Disney Plus's Originally, no. When that when we shot that, it was it was originally booked to be aired on the Smithsonian Network, but then they moved to Disney Plus, which I was a little disappointed about. But yep, Matthew, any final words? Um, check me out on TikTok, and I'm sure we're all we're all linked up too. So yep, yeah, I talk about Jeeps and World War II stuff. 
thank you guys so much and thank you guys for hanging out and uh, joining us for another episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast hopefully for those of y'all listening uh, jeff copsetta will be joining us for the next episode uh for tyler and matthew my name is don abnathy and thank you guys so much and we will talk to you all again soon well, yeah, thanks, thank don. you hey guys i greatly appreciate it man um basically what i do is i'll edit this out a little bit and uh, put the final touches on it and then i will send you guys links to the page where you can download it directly or if you want to help me out you can subscribe to me via your favorite podcast app that way it'll help um show up as more subscribers yeah just shoot an email out yeah right just look for uh, wtsp or just look for what's the scuttlebutt on any of the apps whether it's itunes there is an office podcast about the show the office called the what's the scuttlebutt but mine has this logo behind me so just looking for what's the scuttlebutt podcast and you'll see this logo and subscribe i'm on google stitcher spotify itunes all of that and um you can just like and subscribe and it'll download i try to get an episode out every month i try i used to do every week but with my um my partner's been slacking a little bit so i've been doing a lot more without him but uh yep we try to get at least two up a month but um i'll talk to you all later thanks man all right time but yeah go ahead and reach me out an email and um we'll do yeah, yeah, I also found you on uh, Instagram, Tyler. So um, I added you as a friend. I'm on oh, there cool. too. I'm on um, Donovan four ten. Uh, Donovan four ten. I'll I'll send you my Instagram as well. There, yeah, Matthew. Go ahead and find me. I I got the same tag as TikTok. Perfect. Thanks, right. guys. Bye. All right. Bye, guys. This has been a digital four ten production. <laughs>